Well, before we look to the scriptures, let's pray together. Lord, if we gain no other benefit for the rest of the conference, you have already given us more in grace than we possibly could ever deserve. You have already given us so much in our minds and in our hearts for which we could praise you for the rest of our lives, that there is a gospel because of the man Jesus Christ, that we are united with him. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You have all authority. Oh, Father, we would pray that your strength will be present in us. We are physical creatures. We get tired. Uh, We struggle to concentrate. Our enemy, the devil, uh, desires to wrestle with us so that we do not gain from your word. But Lord Jesus, because you have all authority, because you have all power, you have both the right and the power to bless us this afternoon. And we ask that you will do so because you deserve to have a holy people who love you with all that they are. And Father, we pray that even now by your spirit, you will work this afternoon to conform us a little bit more into the image of Jesus Christ, to submit more to his authority, and to love him more until we love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. So be with us, we pray. We can do nothing. We look to you in full confidence that you can do more than we can ask or even think. For we ask it in the worthy and authoritative name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. Matthew, chapter 7. I just want to look at uh, the last two verses of Matthew, chapter 7, words which are doubtless very familiar uh, to us. The message that I'm looking at, uh, in terms of overarching title, is the ethical implications of the Sermon on the Mount today. And while we're going to be looking at uh, different elements of this topic, uh, I really do hope that in the end of the second session, that's the the other five-minute section, which is critical, uh, that we'll be able to actually profit from this as one combined discourse, even though it's broken up into two uh, discrete sections. Verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Well, why is it that after Jesus speaks, the crowds are amazed? I mean, there's several things that we could think of, uh, but here we're told explicitly the crowds are amazed because Jesus teaches in a way unlike anything they've ever heard. He doesn't teach like the other teachers. He doesn't teach even like a well-respected or famous teacher of the law. When he speaks, when he teaches, he is absolutely unique. They have never heard anyone like this. They have never heard anyone who speaks with full authority. It's not just what he says, although that's certainly a large part of it. It's also how he says it. It's not just sort of the message that comes out of his mouth. But the words are rooted and grounded in a person who is the embodiment of all authority. 
when he speaks, he doesn't quote other people. This is all standard sorts of considerations. He doesn't speak as their teachers of the law speak, who are always looking for a precedent, who are always trying to root, their, or root and ground their pronouncements in antecedent teachers and an antecedent authority. When Jesus speaks, he doesn't quote a rabbi. Uh, when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he doesn't have to have exhaustive footnotes or in-text citations. He doesn't need to appeal to this PhD and that professor. He doesn't need to cite someone else's book. All he needs to do is speak his own thoughts, his own words. And that's completely different, frankly, even from teachers in the church today. Something else, though, that Jesus doesn't do, which is very interesting, is that when Jesus speaks in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not quoting Scripture, at least the way we quote Scripture. Jesus is, when he quotes Scripture, it's actually to show that there's a bit of a shift coming. Uh, There's something a little bit different going on now. But when he's giving his positive pronouncements, he's not quoting verses of Scripture. He's not saying, listen, in the Old Testament... In the scriptures, it says this, so this is what I want you to do. Rather, he, again, simply speaks his own words. He speaks his own message. He doesn't anchor or ground his authority in citations from the Old Testament scriptures. He also doesn't speak like the prophets. He does not open his mouth and say, thus saith the Lord. When he speaks, when the prophets spoke, they spoke the words of God, but they self-consciously distanced themselves, their own words, their own message, their own interpretation from being the medium through which the word of God came. So when the prophets spoke, they didn't say, this is my word, thus saith the Lord. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus simply speaks his own words, and when Jesus speaks his own words, the Lord speaks. Thus saith the Lord. It's implicit because when Jesus speaks, the Lord is speaking. Something else which is interesting is that when Moses speaks, when Moses gives the law, he doesn't give it in the first person. He doesn't come down from Sinai and say, listen, I have some some laws here. I have some rules here. I have some regulations here. Uh, Some of our traditions are this, but I say this is the way that it is. No, Moses comes and he gives the word of God. He gives the law of God. He gives what God has said. He doesn't use his own, uh, he doesn't use the pronoun I. He does not come down from Sinai and say, this is what I think. This is what I say. This is what I command. But when Jesus speaks, I say unto you. And the crowds hear him. And as the crowds listen to him, they are amazed. Because here is someone who speaks with his own inherent and intrinsic authority, unlike anyone else who has ever spoken. When Jesus speaks, it is an amazing thing because of the authority that he has. This is what we should expect, after all, that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has told people very clearly, listen, I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I am, and I won't get into this, there are other people here who are more capable uh, in this domain uh, than I am, but when Jesus speaks, he speaks as the one who gives the new law of the new covenant. He is, as John's book is titled, he is the new 
lawgiver. And so when he speaks, he speaks as the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophets. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures pointed forward towards. He is everything that they were brought to consummation and fulfillment. And so when he speaks, we should expect to find something different in the authority by which he communicates. So the crowds are amazed. After this, Jesus comes down from the mount and I think sort of categorically demonstrates not only that when he speaks he has authority, he is authoritative in word, but he is also completely authoritative in deed. That is, he comes down from, the, from delivering the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 8, and we find that he's met with this man who has leprosy. Leprosy is a disease, of course, that is symbolic of being under the curse of God. You know, to have leprosy uh, meant that you were, or was interpreted as being specifically uh, under the curse of God. No one can heal leprosy except God himself. You cannot touch the person who is unclean. According to the law of God, you cannot touch the person who is unclean or you yourself will become defiled. But Jesus, who has all authority when he speaks, also begins to demonstrate he has all authority in every aspect of life. He has all authority over every domain of life. He even has authority over the strictures of the Old Testament law. That is, he is so authoritative, he is so pure, he is so holy, he is so clean, that he can, as he does, touch the one who is unclean, and rather than contracting that defilement upon himself, as the law said, he, for the first time in history, the clean person who touches the unclean, cleanses the one who is defiled. Anyone else... Anyone else who touched this person is ceremonially unclean instantaneously. But when it's Jesus Christ, and he touches the one who is unclean instantaneously, he is purified. This is a massive shift in terms of salvation history. It's the sort of massive shift in practice you would expect, given the massive shift in teaching in salvation history that you get in Matthew 5 through 7. Complete authority in word, complete authority in deed. And this is why immediately after healing the man with leprosy, uh, Jesus meets this, or is met by the centurion. Remember, the centurion has the servant at home who's paralyzed in terrible suffering, and Jesus says, I will go and heal him. And the centurion in his response, amazes Jesus. Jesus says, I have never found anyone in Israel who has faith like this. This person has great faith. Why? Is it only because the centurion believes that Jesus can heal from a distance? You know, that's sometimes the way that it's taken. Uh, Jesus is amazed because the centurion says, Lord, you don't even need to come to my house. You're so powerful, you can heal at a distance. That's part of it. But the centurion believes that Jesus can heal at a distance because the centurion understands something of the authority with which Jesus operates. That's why when in his response he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. In other words, the crowds have just been amazed by Jesus' teaching. He teaches with authority and now... 
There's a centurion who Jesus is amazed by his faith, and Jesus is amazed by his faith, not just because he thinks Jesus can heal from a distance, but because this centurion sees some aspect of Jesus that other people have missed. Jesus is a man with authority. As a Roman officer, he says, I understand authority when I see it. I'm under authority. People are under my authority. I recognize authority. Jesus, because I can recognize authority when I see you, I know you don't even need to come to my house. There is an authority that you have which is different from anything else that I have seen. Next, it's Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. And I'll tell you this. Peter must have been quite the son-in-law to want his mother-in-law healed when she was sick. <laughs> Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. Now, for us, of course, you know, we have so much medication and, and whatnot uh, that we think you, know, you, have, you have a low-grade fever and you have the flu, and so Jesus heals her. The reality of the case is that in many parts of the world today, contracting a fever is still as dangerous as it was 100 or 150 years ago or 200 years ago in North America. People die from fevers every day around the world. In fact, it is possible, some people believe, that more people have died from fevers in the history of the world than any other disease or any other sickness. Now, I realize that fevers are you know, symptomatic of all sorts of underlying problems. I understand that. But in the first century, you have a fever, and it's not just a matter of taking a couple aspirin and waking up the next day and you're going to be fine. This may be a deathbed. This may be terminal. Or if, any, or if nothing else, there's very likely a question mark hung over this. Will she be okay? Will she pull through? Jesus heals her. The fever leaves her. Then people who are possessed by demons, and I, and I love this, uh, liberals don't seem to understand this, uh, but the New Testament, uh, the people in the first century, clearly differentiated between people who were sick and people who were possessed by demons. Uh, sometimes being possessed by a demon caused sickness or caused seizures, but you, there's a clear differentiation when Jesus heals the sick and drives out demons. That is, there weren't some sort of, you know, there weren't just a bunch of pre- critical idiots. There's a difference here. They're not just all naive. There's a difference between healing from, casting out demons and healing people who are sick. Jesus does both. Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over demons. What else does Jesus have authority over? Well, he has authority in verses 18 and 22. He has authority over people. He can call disciples. He can set the terms of discipleship. I'm crass enough, and you work through the book of Matthew, and you realize that the disciples, even to the very end, three times Jesus tells them he's going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, to be mocked, to be flogged, to be persecuted, to be crucified. And interestingly enough, every time Jesus says it, three times in the Gospel of Matthew, he also says it on the third day, I'll be raised again. Disciples never, they never pick up on that. They never pick up on that. They're always, uh, the second, they don't get the first one at all. Uh, the second one, they're filled with grief. And the third one, it's the same thing. They, they don't pick up on the resurrection language being raised again. They just don't understand what it means. But what's interesting is that after the second time Jesus says it, and after the third time Jesus says it, the next thing you see are the disciples bickering about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. I am going to Jerusalem to be persecuted, to be rejected, to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. 
Jesus, the central throne in the kingdom is reserved for you. But everyone needs a cabinet. Right hand, left hand, derivative authority. If you need some people, we just want to tell you, or actually we're going to send our mom to tell you, uh, that maybe we're the right fit. Just pick us. We'll, we'll do it. You know, we're, we're not trying to get in your way, but come on, there's these other places of derivative authority we'd love to occupy. They just don't get it. They just don't get it. And they don't understand what the kingdom is all about. At this point, if you heard Jesus teach all authority, he heals the person with leprosy, he heals the centurion servant at a distance, he heals the fever, he drives out demons. I'm starting to think, uh, crassly and selfishly, this is the guy to follow. Sickness is gone, demonic oppression is gone. What can't this guy do? This is great. This is the kingdom. This is blessing and prosperity. This is wonderful. And so immediately, Jesus gives some very hard teachings about what discipleship actually means. It's going to get harder in Matthew 16 when he teaches them that being a real disciple means carrying your cross. Because if you want to know who the, what, the, what real messiahship is like, it entails the cross. And it's at that point when Jesus says, listen, you're right, Peter, I am the Christ. But if you really want to know what messiahship means, you have to understand the cross. And if you really understand what it means to follow the messiah who's going to the cross, then real discipleship is going to entail exactly the same thing. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. You sure you want to follow me? And what's interesting here in Matthew is we're not told the response of either one of those two people. Jesus gives a harsh teaching. It's not like the rich young ruler who goes away sad. We're not told one way or the other. Did they follow? Did they go home? And it's almost as if this is hung out, and the silent question there is for you, it's for me. If you think that following Jesus is just a matter of prosperity and having a superpower on your side, there's a lot of tough elements to being his disciple too. What's your choice? Are you going to follow him? We're not told what they do. But after that, Jesus immediately demonstrates authority over the winds and the waves. We're very familiar with the story. He has authority over nature itself. He's authority over God's creation. And the disciples, again, are amazed, and they ask, what kind of a man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. The disciples are amazed. They're astounded that Jesus, with a word, has the authority to stop and to calm the storm. And he, they can't figure out, who is this guy? What kind of a man is this? And they get an answer to their question, but not from Jesus. They get an answer to their question by the demons filling the man whom they meet as soon as the boat touches the shore. You are the son of the living God. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? The disciples, who is this man? Well, the demons know. He is the son of God. We know from the other gospels that this is the man who has the legion of demons. We've already seen Jesus with a word drive out a demon from someone. But what will Jesus do? What sort of power and authority will he have when he's confronted by a whole legion of demons, by a whole company of the host of hell? He drives them out with a word. Power and authority. Nothing can stand in his way. And then in chapter 9, I think this is where the text is building, 
Some men bring to Jesus a paralytic. Well, we've already seen that Jesus can heal some, we've already seen that Jesus can heal a paralytic with a word from a distance. So then these people come and bring a paralytic. Well, this is kind of anticlimactic. And so Jesus says, all right, here's a paralytic. This is easy. You're healed. That's what you'd expect. But Jesus says, take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Why don't, that has nothing to do with anything. You know, we've been building up this case that Jesus has authority over in word and teaching. Jesus has authority uh, over demons, over sickness. Jesus has authority over the Old Testament law. Jesus has authority over God's creation. Jesus has authority over an army of demons. Jesus has authority over everything. And here's this paralytic, and Jesus says, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And the people think, Who is this guy? He's blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus then says, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk now it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk but it's a lot harder to forgive sins but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins jesus christ has authority over everything including the authority to forgive sinners. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never been out in a boat in the middle of a lake in a storm when I thought I was going to drown. And so there's only so much immediate textual application to my life, unless I'm going to make all the storms metaphorical. You know, these are the trials and tempests of life, and if Jesus is in the boat, then you'll be fine. And and while there's a sense in which those sorts of considerations are true, the reality is that I have never been in a boat with Jesus thinking I was going to drown, and Jesus has calmed the storm and bailed me out. That's never happened, but I'm a sinner who needs someone with the authority to forgive me for my sins. And all of this text is building up to get to the point where we can praise God. Not because we're full of a legion of demons, not because we're in a boat, not because, you know, we're sick, not because we have leprosy, but because categorically Jesus has demonstrated that he has authority in heaven and on earth over everything, including the forgiveness of sins, which is why immediately in verses 9 and following, people are incensed that Jesus is eating and talking with sinners. How can Jesus eat and have fellowship with sinners? It's because he has the authority to forgive them for their sins. It's because he has authority to take the sinner and make him pure. He has the authority to cleanse the spiritual leper and make him pure and holy without spot and without blemish. Jesus has authority to be with us to the end of the age because he has the authority to forgive sinners of their sins. And that authority will come through the atoning sacrifice in his own shed blood. That is, he buys and purchases the right to provide forgiveness for sins. Fred did a fantastic uh, job last night, uh, taking my main point this afternoon, (laughs) which I thought was very, very wicked of him. But Jesus has authority to forgive you, brother, not me. Um, 
That wasn't a joke. Um, <laughs> neither was that. This is terrible. Uh, I'm almost tempted to say it again, but I'll just stop. Uh, the, the gospel of Matthew builds then, and, and through other twists and turns on the way, does end, though, with, again, the categorical pronouncement. The one who has authority in teaching, the one who demonstrates authority in word, has all authority. And this anchors our ability to share the gospel with every single person of every single language of every tribe on the globe. There is no square inch of space in the universe where Jesus Christ does not have full authority. And there is no square inch of space in the universe where anyone has the right to forbid the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus has full authority over everything, everywhere. And that's built up all through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Fred, last night, also gave some uh, illustrations of the difference between uh, authority and power. You know, the rhinoceros running through the room has power, but not authority. His dad had the authority to sit uh, in the chair. I, I, I made it into a catchy little slogan that rhymes. You'll like this. It's good. I'm, I'm somewhat worried that I actually plagiarize it from someone I just don't remember. I think it's original, but it might not be. It's so creative. I think it's from me. It says this. <clears throat> Power is might. Authority is right. When I'm not pastoring, I'm on the short list to be Canada's poet laureate. Power is might. Authority is right. You have the right. Sometimes you don't have the power. I mean, if someone breaks into my house, to give another example, if someone breaks into my house, they may be able to overpower me. Now, obviously, I'd have to be asleep with arms and a chest like mine. If someone breaks in and I'm awake, there's not going to be any issue of them having more power than I have. Uh, but if I'm asleep and they overpower me, then, well, that's just the way it goes. I'm helpless. But even if they have more power than I have, they have absolutely no, author- they have no authority at all to be in my house. Power and authority are simply not the same thing. But with Jesus and with God, power might and right are perfectly combined. And aren't you glad? The one who is omnipotent is also the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. God is the God of all perfection. Every perfection is found in him. Every perfection only exists because of him. That is, we'll talk about this uh, later if we have enough time. But we only understand what perfection is. We only understand what attributes of perfection are because they flow out of God. God is all perfection. And it is so refreshing and so wonderful to know that the one who has all power in the universe is also the one who has all right and all authority to use it. That's a great thing. Power and authority and benevolence. Isn't that good? The one who has all power, has all authority, is loving and merciful and gracious and uses his power and uses his authority to forgive sinners like us 
through the cost of his own blood. It's for good reason that we sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. All authority and all power. Well, that, um, you'll be happy to know that that was the important first five minutes. This message, though, uh, of Jesus having, don't look at your watch. Uh, You'll be happy to know that this message of Jesus having all authority, though, of course, uh, comes into us in our context and in our society. So what we need to do is we do need to have some basic understanding of the way people interpret and understand the concept of authority in the world around us. As we talk about the one who has all authority, we need to understand what sorts of connotations that has with people particularly outside of the church. This is going to be uh, very quick, and one of the difficulties with being quick is you can distort things uh, unintentionally. But I'm going to argue for the next little while, because I'm not going to argue, I'm just going to forthrightly declare that in our society, really what you see, if you pay attention, and this is, this is not in any way refined, okay? this is not nuanced, but you, there are two main pillars of thought, secular thought, in our society. And, and on the one side, you get sort of an overarching uh, philosophical relativism. Okay? And on the other side you get a very objectivist scientism, okay? where on the one side, everything's going to be relative. But on the other side, everything is going to be, while not attaining 100% certainty, there's always that caveat thrown in there, for all intents and purposes, functionally, we can have objective certainty. And if you just pay attention to a lot of the dialogue and discussion that's going, along, going around in society, you'll notice that a lot of the positions taken are flowing out of these two diametrically opposed schools of thought. However, one of the interesting things about them is that the scientism and the objectivist, it has a system which is absolutely authoritarian. And the thoroughgoing relativist has a system which is utterly anti-authoritarian. But both are completely totalitarian just in diametrically opposite ways. That is, they are completely different but connected integrally by a root of being totalitarian. In other words, both put themselves forward as the right way, as the right system, the right way of looking at things, and that all other systems must be leveled and critiqued on the basis of their position. Which is why postmodern philosophers critique objectivist enlightenment thinkers. And which is why objectivists are always critiquing postmoderns. And they're doing so out of their own paradigms. Because at base, even though they're diametrically opposed on paper, at a deeper structure, they're both authoritarian. They're both totalitarian. They're both zero-sum games. I think 
that Van Til was 100% right when he said that in the end, there really is only the Christian worldview and the non-Christian worldview. There are not non-Christian worldviews, plural. Fundamentally, you clear away all of the superstructures, you bring it down to the foundation, there is one non-Christian worldview foundation, only one, rooted in autonomy, guaranteed the wheels will come off, rooted with man at the center, rooted with man as the measure, rooted in rebellion against God. And you boil down all the overlay of scholarly pretensions and argumentation, and at the end you find that anti-authoritarianism and authoritarianism share the exact same foundation of autonomous totalitarianism. Postmodernism, as has been frequently said by those who study it intently, uh, is sometimes better understood as a mode of inquiry rather than a complete philosophical uh, perspective. Uh, But there's lots of diversity in postmodern thinking, lots of diversity uh, in relativistic uh, philosophy. But for our terms, when it comes to authority, one of the, there are two central things to look at, and, and that is that postmodernism or relativism uh, degenerates very quickly, self-consciously so, into sort of uh, epistemological and ethical relativism. Epistemological because they say, and this is, this is true actually, uh, that for human beings, everything that we think, everything that we see is always based on our own individual perspective. Now, in order to be scholarly, you need to make your view into an ism. So this is called perspectivalism. You, know, you, you, you can't just get a, a PhD by writing a dissertation on it saying, listen, everyone has their own perspective. But if you call it perspectivalism, then all of a sudden that must be very intelligent indeed. You know, so this is sometimes called perspectivalism. All it means is that everyone has their own perspective. Everyone has their own unique vantage point. Everyone has their way of looking at things. And that's all very true. In fact, one of the things which is helpful, and I mean this very sincerely, is that a lot of postmodern thought, a lot of postmodern philosophers have been very, very helpful at pricking and popping the bubble of the pretensions that have flowed out of the Enlightenment. In other words, what's sometimes been called the chastened rationality, which a Christian can and should appropriate today, meaning we don't know everything. We don't know everything. I don't know everything. You don't know everything. We do have our own biases. We do have our own perspectives. We do need to use the hermeneutics of suspicion against ourselves. And frankly, in many ways, in my understanding of New Covenant theology, which is minimal, so this is probably wrong, uh, this is one of the things that New Covenant theology is saying about systems of theology. We need to use the hermeneutics of suspicion when it comes to the reasons we're supporting our own positions of theology. Uh, that is, in other words, we need to get back and look at our presuppositions. I have a bias. A- and if I come to the scriptures, and it's the scriptures and the Westminster Confession, or it's the scriptures and the Schofield Reference Bible, or if it's the scriptures and the publications of New Covenant media, I have a bias. 
And I need to be very, very careful that I understand what my bias is. I have to make very careful that whenever I have a horse in the race, that I know that I have a horse in the race, <laughs> that I know I have a vested interest in this, and when I know that I have to work twice as hard to critique my own position that I work to critique the other positions. It's natural to, create, to, to critique positions I don't agree with. It's easy to see their flaws. I think Jesus said something about this in a bit of a different context, about a speck in the eye and a beam in the eye. It's just natural to see the flaws in the other guy's theology. I don't have it all sorted out either. I have a perspective. I have a bias. I need to be suspicious of my motives. This is one of the things I, I have to admit that uh, when it comes to the new perspective on justification, some of the arguments that have been used, which I think are very unfair, some people say, well, listen, people are gravitating towards a new perspective because it's new, and people love novelty, and these guys are trying to make a name for themselves. Fine. Fair enough. But could it not also be just as logically possible that there are guys who have preached and taught the old perspective for 30 or 40 or 50 years who don't want to have to stand before their congregation and say, you know what, I blew it. You know what, I was wrong. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying that there's at, least as, there's at least as much of a bias in having taught and preached the old perspective as it is a love of novelty which attracts people to the new, do you see? We all have biases. We all have perspectives. So we need to be very careful to analyze our own. This is one of the reasons that the postmoderns talk a lot about interpretive communities. That is, you need to look at not just your own interpretation, but the community that you're comfortable with. You know, the, the people that you associate with, whether that's, you know, post-enlightenment, whether that's, you know, central Pennsylvania, whether it's your own particular church or your own seminary or whatever it is. We just need to be very careful that there really is such a thing as groupthink too. So I have my own perspective, and my perspective is mediated through an interpretive community to which I belong. Again, this isn't necessarily wrong. A lot of this is factual. It's what you think the entailments are where you start to run into problems. Same is true with linguistics and the linguistic turn. We won't get into all of that. Needless to say that today, uh, postmoderns are basically saying, listen, if you look at the Enlightenment... If you look at the principles, the epistemological principles of the Enlightenment, this is where you end up. And you know what? I think they're exactly right. If you start as an Enlightenment thinker, if you start with what's in between your own ears, then you will end up as a thoroughgoing relativist who can't know anything for sure at all, even that you yourself exist. If you start and are rigorous and consistent as an Enlightenment thinker, you will turn out to be an absolute thoroughgoing relative, relativist and skeptic. It's the logical implications and entailment of taking the Enlightenment seriously, which is a wonderful thing because the Christian is not to think the thoughts of the Enlightenment. The Christian is to think the thoughts of God. So that's not a problem for me. That's not a problem for you. You know, if the Enlightenment, if the project of, of autonomous human epistemology derails in the end, it's not my problem. Because that's not what God has ever told me to do. It's not what God has ever called me to do. I have been called to think God's thoughts after him. 
not to start with me, but to start with him. Not to start with my thoughts, but to start with his revelation. So it's just not a problem. In fact, in many ways, Christians should be very thankful for where we are today in terms of the Enlightenment epistemological autonomy ending up in just an utter heap of ruins. And we should learn more thoroughly what the postmodern philosophers are saying because it's actually really, really, really good for us, believe it or not. Not what they're trying to do, but nevertheless helpful. Well, this epistemological relativism then breathes naturally into ethical, uh, ethical relativism. That is, if there's no mind-independent reality, if everything is just my interpretation, and if everything is just my interpretive community, then how can my community adjudicate your community's morality? We can't even know things independently, let alone know what's right or what's wrong. And so this is actually one of the interesting things that, that turned out in the Nuremberg War Trials, is for a long time, uh, moral philosophers here in the States uh, were teaching, at Harvard and all, all the big universities, they were teaching uh, thoroughgoing moral relativism. Uh, that is, you couldn't know th what was right or wrong for sure, and you could never possibly take uh, what you believe was right and apply that to a different nation, a different culture. And then you have the Second World War, and you have the Nuremberg War Trials. And all of a sudden, all of these international lawyers are arguing from natural law. There is right and wrong which transcends cultures but on the basis of human nature and essence. And part of the German defense was they just quoted the guys from Harvard. They said, your own professors are teaching that you don't have the right to critique us. And they said, well, we won the war so tough. You know, there was no philosophical response. It wasn't like, well, maybe we should rethink what we're teaching. It was, well, this is what we teach, but this is what we do. You know, and, I'm not, and that's not just America. That's the whole international community. Because at the end of the day, they couldn't live with what they thought. Because they didn't really believe what they thought. At least they didn't believe it when they had might, power, and authority. You have, they had absolutely no authority on the basis of their own teaching. But they had the power to do what they wanted. That's exactly what happened. Not only this then, but then you get into uh, a difference of incommensurability. That is, you can't even reconcile paradigms. That is, you, you can't even reconcile communities because they're not even speaking the same language. The logic, the ethics, the epistemology, the metaphysics, everything in, every, in each interpretive community doesn't transfer over. In other words, the postmodern says, listen, when I look at the objectivist over here, I only critique him on the basis of what I hold to be true. And he only critiques me on the basis of what he holds to be true. But we reject each other's, remember this is a buzzword, but we reject each other's meta-narrative. We reject each other's overarching way of understanding reality. So we can't even talk to each other. You know, and this is one of the reasons Alistair MacIntyre, who's, who's a brilliant moral philosopher, I mean, he's, he sort of comes out of an Aristotelian Thomist synthesis school of thought, uh, but he says, you know, one of the interesting things about moral and ethical discussions today is not just that they're interminable, just meaning that they go on and on and on and on, although they do, but that there does not seem to be any termination point possible. And he's exactly right. 
It's not just that the discussion goes on and on and on and on and on. It's that no one can even imagine where it could possibly end. Because the, of the, because the paradigms are incommensurable. They're just talking past each other. There's no common ground to bring them together. On the other hand, you have a rise today in certain circles of a really naive scientism. Sort of thing that's represented by Richard Dawkins, uh, Sam Harris. Now, Sam Harris just recently came out with a new book called The Moral Landscape. It's a book which will not sell nearly as many copies as his Letter to a Christian Nation or The End of Faith because this book takes less pot shots and actually tries to be more serious. And that's just not the marketing crowd that he's reaching with his other books. So he's trying to make this move now where now he's going to be taken seriously and I imagine his book sales are going to plummet and as a result. It's not just taking shots at Christians. But one of the things that he argues is that, and here it's historically very significant, he argues that the historical differentiation between fact and value is going to be overcome by science and by nothing else. See, until recently, science and ethics, facts and values, have always been seen to occupy different domains. This has been common currency and stock in moral philosophy since David Hume. You know, David Hume uh, has this really wonderful section uh, where he's talking uh, about moral philosophy. And he says, you know, it's amazing. I listen to people talk about what is. This is a fact. This is the case. This is the way things, things are. That is, they're looking at the world around them, and they're dealing with facts. And then all of a sudden, he says, without hardly even noticing, in the middle of the paragraph, I find the word is disappearing. That is, this is the way things are. And I find the author starting to use the word ought. This is the way things ought to be. This is what you ought to do. It's this very famous dictum. Is does not imply ought. That is, just because something is the way that it is, doesn't mean it should be that way. Just because I can describe a state of affairs, doesn't mean it ought to be that way or ought not to be that way. And so if all you can do is move from what is, or if you start with what is, you can never get to what ought to be. It's a category confusion. You're moving from description to prescription. And you just can't do that. You can't move from is to ought. This, again, was one of those death knells to enlightenment thinking, where you're trying to get your ought from your is. And Hume says you just can't do that. doesn't work that way. You can't get prescription from description. Sam Harris says that's wrong. Science can inform ethics, he says. In fact, he says this. Now listen to this. This is, this is a bombshell. The more, we under, the more we understand ourselves at the level of the brain, the more we will see that there are right and wrong answers to questions of human values. End quote. If we can just describe our brain states, we will find there are right and wrong answers to moral questions. 
Now, you can't get more of an ought from an is than that, okay? What's going on in my brain, the more we study it, the more we will be able to determine that there are right and wrong answers to questions of human values. It's really quite a remarkable uh, statement. In fact, he also says, listen to this, that morality is an underdeveloped branch of science. Morality is an underdeveloped branch of science. In other words, all we're going to be able to do is this. We are only going to be able to determine moral and ethical questions through scientific inquiry. We are only going to be able to determine right and wrong moral answers and ethical issues through scientific study of the human body, through scientific study of the human brain. We understand brain patterns. We understand ourselves. The more science develops, the more we will come to understand morality. Now, that is purely, again, a move from description to prescription. There's nothing else. The more we can describe, the more we can prescribe. That's what he's saying. He argues that in the moral landscape, there are different peaks and valleys. Imagine a mountain range. Uh, imagine a valley. And so there are different ways of living. You know, morality is going to be bound up with consequentialism. That is the consequences of what we do. And it's going to be moral uh, if it furthers human well-being. What is human well-being, you might ask? Well, thankfully, science is going to tell us after we study the human body more. You know, that's what he's saying. We don't know just yet, but the more we study hu the human body and the human brain, particularly, the more we'll be able to determine what human uh, well-being actually involves. It's really quite an amazing, amazing thing. He says that as a result, in the end, there will be moral experts. He says, you may find this idea abhorrent, but it's just like doctors in physical health. You know, doctors study the body. Doctors know how to fix people. And so really, moral experts are just like physical doctors because our morality is coming out of scientific study of the human body. Now, I will bet you now 10 bucks that Harris will be one of the experts. I go on record right now. If there are going to be scientific moral experts guaranteed, Harris is going to be one of them, right? There's just no way he's not going to be. He's committed to moral realism. That is that some claims can be true or false. Some form of consequentialism, as the rightness of an act, depends on how it impacts the well-being of conscious creatures. He says, things that we do don't need to be wrong in every possible world, or a priori, or analytically. They just need to be wrong in this world, even if it's consequentialist, a posteriori, contingent, and with possible exceptions. See, one of the things that he does is he rejects explicitly Plato's view of the good. And I don't have time to get into it. So just so you know, that's big. No, I mean, he, there's, there's basically two... There's basically two views uh, through history. Um, it's been said rightly that everyone in their nature is either a Platonist or an Aristotelian. 
And this is because there's a great shift that comes between the philosophy of Plato and the philosophy of Aristotle. Plato holds that what's real is not the particulars that you see here in this world. What's real is the, what he calls, forms or ideas, so this, these quasi-mathematical uh, perfections uh, that exist in another realm. He has a hard, bit of a hard time explaining it uh, with utter clarity. He says because, you know, he's, how can you clarify these things when you're using the language of the shadow realm? You know, this is the same thing that you get with C.S. Lewis. In fact, in the end of the last battle, you know how they're going into, how they're following Aslan? And, and Lord Diggory says, bless me. It's Plato. It's all in Plato. And as they're going forward, the grass is somehow greener, more real, is because they're moving from the, as Lewis called it, the shadow lands. It's just, Lewis is, is purely Platonic here. Movement from the shadow lands, from the, from the world of shadows, to the reality, the world of forms. And so Plato says, if you really want to know what's good, don't look down here. You need to look at the form of the good. Aristotle comes along, and it's been said, that no teacher had a greater pupil, no pupil had a greater teacher. Aristotle is Plato's teacher. Or, sorry, Plato is Aristotle's teacher. And Aristotle comes along, and there's problems with the whole theory of forms, which Plato himself recognizes near the end of his life. In his dialogues in the Timaeus, he points at some of the problems with his theory, uh, which, are, which is unresolved. And Aristotle comes on, he says, no, it's not that there's this world out there. Those are just abstractions. They don't really exist. What's real are the particulars down here. And so Plato says, if you want to know what's good, there's this perfection abstract form of good out there, some abstract standard. You've heard that language today, surely. Things are right and wrong on the basis of an abstract standard of good. That's just Plato. And other people come along and they say, no, 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 there's no abstract standard. What's right or wrong, we'll only be able to tell as we generate good or bad actions. We'll put together all the particular acts and words. We'll put it together and we'll get the sum of goodness out of what we do. That's Aristotle. Plato and Aristotle. Harris says, there's no Platonic good. It's not out there. So, oh, the only goodness we're going to be able to have access to is what comes out of us. That's Aristotle. Problem is, what comes out of us is subjective. Conditioned by, by, conditioned by culture, conditioned by our own, as Harris would say, our own evolution, right? And, and so you end up with this, with Harris sort of waffling back and forth. Science is going to give us objective moral answers, which are subjective. It's, just, it's kind of hard to put together. Which again shows that Van Til was 100% right when he said that non-Christian thought, as you study through the history of philosophy, and, and I think that he is exactly right in this, that if you work through the history of philosophy, you will see that there's an oscillation, there's a fluctuation 
And there's an incoherence between rationality and irrationality. Van Til calls it the, the, the rational, irrational dialectic. Harris here is exactly caught in this dialectic. Rational, irrational. Objective, subjective. Have my cake, eat it too. He wants it both ways, and you just can't have it. Same with the postmoderns. It's subjective. Our view is subjective, but it's true of everyone. You can't have it both ways. It doesn't work that way. Rational, irrational. The dialectic that plagues all non-Christian thought. So all of that goes to say that, and there's, all, there's a lot more that could be said, but all that goes to say, you must understand that then when you speak a message that revolves around an authoritative lawgiver, an authoritative person who's authoritative in word and in deed, who's authoritative for knowledge, who's authoritative for ethics, you speak into a world where that message is completely, and this is the glory of it, it's completely totalitarian. Who do you think you are? You're a bigot. Your view is totalitarian. Yes, it is. So is yours. So is yours. And my view, which is absolutely, utterly totalitarian, also has all of the intellectual pieces required to pick up and understand and take apart your view, taking what's good from it, rejecting what's bad about it, and we can still go on. Because God ultimately is both fact and value. John, John Frame says this, and, and probably my thinking in terms of you know, Christian philosophy, Christian world, is probably I, I would owe more to the influence of John Frame than to anyone else is that God ultimately is the great fact and the great value. Ultimately, in reality, down here, you can't possibly get an is from an ought. You can't possibly get values from facts. But God as he is, the triune God, that's fact and value together. That's the reason we have objective facts down here, because God is the great fact. That's the reason we have objective values down here. God is the great value. God is fact and value, which is interesting in Genesis, and this we're done. When he speaks, he creates. First of all, when God speaks, his communication is clear, which has a lot to say to postmodern hermeneutics and the linguistic turn. That is, language actually does communicate adequately because God uses language. He's a God who communicates. And when he speaks, the whole universe comes into existence. God speaks and creates a state of affairs. God speaks and instantiates facts. But then God also evaluates them. These facts, this state of affairs, is good. This state of affairs is very good. He is the God who creates fact. He is the God who interprets the fact and shows the facts values. Because he is the one who is both good itself, fact itself, and the one who has full authority to evaluate the state of affairs. That's why, in many ways, when I read Sam Harris, I say, you know what, Sam? There's a sense in which I think you're right. The more we understand about ourselves, the more we should be able to gain clarity on moral questions. The only problem is your procedure from your worldview, will not get you anywhere at all. 
your procedure from a Christian worldview might actually be very helpful. Might be very helpful indeed.